electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, a big shock from Ford. The automaker giving a fresh look under the hood of EVs, and it ain't pretty. But big old trucks, they keep on trucking. Holy Intel, the chip maker blowing away doubters on its latest results. We'll hear from the CEO in a first on CNBC interview. One state's electricity prices set to go higher again, and they could be a bellwether for the rest of America. Move over, GameStop. There's a new favorite meme stock in town. It's Tupperware. Herb Greenberg is here to say buyer beware. Plus, how the ultra wealthy are investing their money, and it's probably not where you think. We've got an exclusive inside look. And if you thought that college tuition was expensive, wait till you hear what parents are paying sorority consultants. It's a thing. That and much more over the hour. So belly up and buckle up. Last call is up right now. Good evening. I am Brian Sullivan, and as you can tell from the music, we, we begin the night on a very somber note. One of Wall Street's greatest runs has met its maker. A record 14-session win streak for the Dow. It is done. Let's just take a moment and remember it. Or we can get real, because hitting that record was a long shot to begin with. How much of a long shot? According to our fine in-house odds makers, the odds about 1 in 17,000 or 0.006%. That's it. 13 days in a row. Still, we got to honor the good times during the win streak. I mean, who can forget things like 3M's 14-point surge or Goldman Sachs lifting investor spirits by 12%? Boeing, Sword, United Health, and J&J all rising during this record tying. 13-day run. But amid the overall somber time, here's a little sully side up. The record run means the Dow is up more than 6% on the year. It's not bad, but it's not great, particularly when you compare the Dow with the monster runs in the other indexes, the S&P up 18%, the NASDAQ, hold my beer, it's up 34% this year. By the way, the NASDAQ 100 is up about 45%. Great run, but the Dow's run it's done. So joining us now to give the eulogy is Fairlead founder and managing partner Katie Stockton. Katie, welcome to Last Call. I'm old enough to remember the Dow's 13-day run. I don't mean the one back in 1987. Listen, it's the Dow. No one's charting off it, I guess. What do you make of it? Is there any broader investor takeaway from that? The rally in the Dow Industrials was associated with a breakout. And breakouts have been seeing really good upside follow through in this environment. And that's what we saw. We saw 13 straight days of it. And we enjoyed it, like you said, while it lasted. Now, as of today, with the weakness that we saw, which was largely driven by Dow component Honeywell, 
we have an outside down day. And that's when the day's range encompasses the previous day and you get this week close. It's not a pretty looking short-term technical setup. It usually does see additional consolidation, but the impact on our indicators, thankfully, really isn't that impactful, meaning that the weekly gauges that we track that measure things like intermediate term momentum and whether something's too overbought, those are still pointing higher for the Dow. So we think that this is just a short term issue, at least that should be the assumption with that breakout still pretty fresh. What about for things like the triple Q, much more widely traded, widely owned ETFs? Do you see the market overall moving higher from here? Or is do we need sort of the, uh, the, the pause that refreshes, to coin the soda phrase? These are definitely strong uptrends that still do have momentum. We've been using the 20-day moving average as a great gauge of the prevailing short to intermediate term trend. And it's mostly pointing higher for not only the major indices, but on the individual stock level. So as long as that's the case, we want to stay with a bullish view. And we say that because the right thing to do is usually to assume that a trend that's in motion will stay in motion until it proves us otherwise. And there are certainly some risks out there. Some of them are actually technical, especially market sentiment, which you could describe as overly bullish or mm. too greedy right now. And when that turns, it often turns on a dime and we have to be ready to get hedged. The motions we're going to if no one's coined the Isaac Newton market, I'm coining it right now. Right. The object in motion tends to I think hopefully that was Newton. Otherwise, I'm look really dumb. Katie, the top five components in the Dow has changed over the years. In 1992, the top five Dow components were Minnesota manufacturing, basically 3M, General Electric, mm -hmm. Philip Morris, Chevron and Alcoa. It says aluminum, but it's supposed to say Alcoa. Eight years later, it changed to J.P. Morgan Chase. 3M, J&J, &J, then you throw in a little Merck, then a little Exxon, 2010, another change, Intel, remember them, Caterpillar, Chevron, 3M, and UTX, and now it's United Health, Goldman Sachs, Microsoft, Home Depot, and Caterpillar. During that time, the Dow 30 has jumped more than 1,000%, which I, I guess the question here is, is it pointless to try to time the market and to stock pick when history suggests the overall stock market, Dow, S&P, NASDAQ, whatever it is, is going to go high 75% of the time, no matter who's in it. Well, I would say a bullish bias typically has been appropriate over history, and that's why we're always looking for entries. But at the same time, we're managing risks during downdrafts. And I think that's key because if you can avoid some of the big downdrafts, I'm not talking about brief pullbacks or corrections, but major downdrafts, you set your portfolio at a higher bar to recover from. So that's what our goal is in part in market timing. We always want to buy something that's closer to where buyers have stepped in before. We call that support and we want to sell things when they're closer to where sellers have been before as well, resistance. So that makes a lot of sense to us in terms of managing risk and trying to gauge the risk reward profile. What's happened with the Dow Industrials in particular with the breakout, now it's pulled away from initial support at its 50-day moving average. The 50-day moving average is about 3.5% below for the Dow. And guess what? Resistance is also about 3.5% above. So the risk-reward isn't fantastic. We're talking about a 1-to-1 mm -hmm. one -one ratio. We like to see at least a 2-to-1 ratio of reward to risk to take a, a position in something. So if we had an existing position, we're generally holding on to that. But if we are looking for new ideas, we'd be seeking 
technical catalyst, and that can be in the form of breakouts or momentum shifts. In the Dow components, I think Boeing is probably the best example of a breakout. Boeing, nice. We like that. Watching BA then, fantastic. Got the Isaac Newton market, maybe the Wayne Newton market, the Katie Stockton market. Katie, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. All right, you're welcome. All right, in the meantime, here are your stud and dud du jour. The biggest winner of the day wasn't even close. Align Technology, they make the Invisalign braces pretty much everybody has on nowadays. The biggest decliner, eBay down more than 10% today. All right, up next. If you thought Ford was losing a lot of money on electric cars before, wait to hear how much they're losing now. Plus, Intel silencing many doubters, at least for one day. Stock surging after beating expectations. The CEO speaks out in a first on CNBC interview next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC business news updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. First up, an expansion for First Solar. They will spend over $1 billion to open up their fifth factory in America. Location is TBD. The move coming is the Biden climate spending plan helping energy makers. First Solar, by the way, the largest maker of solar panels in America. Next, some good news for Roku. Shares of the streamers seeing a pretty hefty pop after hours. Results came in better than feared. Sales rose. Roku's user base jumped by $10 million. From a year ago, the stock's up 8.5%. All right. But even with strong results, the company warned of an advertising market that is, quote, muted. Hmm. All right, check this out. Intel returning to profitability. But before we break down the earnings, John Ford spoke with Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger about how he plans to use the company to participate in the AI market. He says he expects customers like Amazon to use a combo of their own AI chips along with Intel's Gaudi chips, which are already used by Amazon Web Services. Listen. Our objective is to democratize AI, to have a broad set of inclusion of AI at the edge, in the client, in the enterprise, as well as in the cloud. And when we think about the cloud, yeah, obviously there's going to be a range of accelerators that are going to be there, and obviously Amazon is doing their their own, uh, but also they have Gaudis on the Amazon cloud instances today, so we're participating there. But as your question suggests, uh, again, hey, I want to be the foundry partner, so even if they're not using my product, I want to be the manufacturer and be able to participate in that portion of the market. And we're seeing two ways that we're going to do that. One is becoming the wafer supplier, but also becoming the package supplier. And we're seeing that the Intel advanced packaging technologies, an area of sustained leadership for us, is finding lots of near-term opportunities that people say, wow, I need more of this advanced packaging technology to deliver my AI accelerators. And Intel clearly has a leadership position there and one that we're finding numerous good opportunities there pursuing as well. All right, Christina Partsonevel is joining us now with a little bit of more on Intel, which was like one of these good, not one of these bad surprises, like as a rattlesnake in the sock drawer. This is a good surprise. 
Yeah, it's a it's a good surprise because profits are back, and this is after two quarters of profit losses. Intel surprised investors by posting an earnings per share of 13 cents, much higher than the three cent loss expected. But much of that was driven by its client computing business. And what do I mean by that? That encompasses Intel's laptop and desktop processor shipments. Although it was down year over year, it came in much higher than anticipated and adds to the narrative that PC sales have pretty much bottomed, something we also are seeing reflected in memory chip prices and why Micron shares jumped over 5% today. But there are concerns with its data center and AI revenues, down about 15% year over year. The company's earnings PowerPoint blamed competitive pressures, with Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger admitting on the earnings call this evening that yes, AI chip demand is hurting their traditional server business, which is why he said, quote, we expect Q3 server CPUs to modestly decline sequentially before recovering in Q4. Keep in mind, Intel is slashing costs. In February, it cut its dividend, it cut its CEO base pay, laid off staff with the goal of trying to save $3 billion this year alone and $10 billion by 2025. Intel's Q3 guidance, though, overall did come in higher, adding to the stock jump that you're seeing on your screen, 8% higher in after hours. Overall, Brian, though, this is seen as the first sign of CEO Pat Gelsinger's turning turnaround that he's been talking about for so long now. Yeah, I mean, tr- truly a remarkable turnaround for Intel. I think, Christina, the question is, you know, in two quarters, that's great. Still a show-me market, still a show-me company, right? I, and Gelsinger's getting paid a lot of money to turn it around. He did, well, he, he yeah, he did take a, a, a pay cut, let's just say that. But yes, uh, we've been waiting for this for a while. These are the beginning signs. This doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Intel is going to be able to catch up to the likes of AMD or NVIDIA, especially when it comes to the AI push, because Intel lacks the AI push roadmap. Where are their products? When are they going to come out with their own AI chips? Intel said Mm -hmm. later this year there's concerns that that could be pushed back given their previous troubles with other products. But overall, Intel's trying. They do have a good CPU that works well with a lot of these AI uh, processors. But uh, it's... It's something that we're going to have to see for several quarters. We can't just say, boom, Intel's back right away. I can't say any better than that. You just did. Christina Partsonevelis, thank you. By the way, a quick programming note. You can see much more of that first on CNBC interview with the Intel CEO throughout tomorrow. First call giving you the first taste of a little Pat Gelsinger. Here we go. All right, now to Ford, because this is really interesting and I think somewhat telling. First up, Ford posted a great quarter. Results overall, very strong. F-150s, SUVs like the new Bronco, selling well and boosting profitability. Nice work. However, also a lot of red at the Blue Oval coming in on the electric car division. Now, if you remember back in the spring, Ford said it expected losses of about $3 billion for the year on EVs. Today, it said it expects to lose four and a half billion over the next year. And the CEO saying that effectively customer adoption has been slower than expected. Now, despite that, that CEO, Jim Farley, did strike a fairly optimistic tone on the earnings call a short time ago. We expect the EV market to remain volatile until the winners and losers shake out. And we are confident from a brand, from our incredible product strategy, our software, our scale and our cost position, we will be one of the winners long-term. 
All right, joining us now is former Ford CEO and CBC contributor Mark Fields. And, and Mark, listen, um, I, I think it's pretty telling. I mean, the customer, the customer is speaking and speaking very loudly. Do you think that not just Ford, but the other automakers, not named Tesla, are listening? Well, I think they are. I mean, you know, the bottom line, Brian, is you're seeing EV sales grow uh, pretty uh, heady here in the U.S., right? In the second quarter, uh, the EV market hit a record. We'll probably sell about a million EVs in the U.S. this year in total. And the market share of EVs is about 7%, which is about double what it was last year. The problem is that demand for EVs is not keeping up with production, right? You have, you know, all the automakers introducing these new products this year. There's a lot more coming next year. Um, And, you know, when you look at some of the barriers like price, range, and uh, charging infrastructures, you know, getting early adopters to buy your product is one thing. That's easy. Getting mass adoption is a whole lot harder. Yeah. Uh, Listen, I I get it. And... But forget it. Let's forget about demand for EVs. We know the demand is growing, right? Ninety three percent of Americans still on gas, but demand is growing. But they're losing twenty to thirty thousand dollars per car. So at some how do you turn that around? Because I'm sorry, as much as I might love the Mach-E, I'm not paying one hundred thousand dollars for it. Yeah, I mean, that that's the key, right? Going forward what the automakers do is they use their first generation product to learn and look at, you know, how they can improve on the second generation platform, which, you know, automakers like Ford are going to be doing in the next couple of years to bring the cost down. But the chicken and the egg problem, Brian, is, you know, in the auto industry, it's all about scale and driving piece costs down. That means you have to be running your plants at literally full capacity. And the challenge for the automakers with the EVs is, listen, since the take up is slower, how do they get those plants up to full capacity so you can get the cost down and also apply that to the next generation model? So at some point for those automakers that have these you know, dedicated facilities, they're going to be faced with a choice. Do I discount the product to keep the plant going and get that scale? Or do I potentially take downtime at the plant, which is a big financial hit? We, we have a giant UAW contract negotiation Coming up, the UAW, my guess is, and I haven't spoken to them to be fair, but I'd love to. And they're, by the way, they're welcome on the air anytime. Uh, probably not a huge fan of EVs because they don't use as many parts. The deal will get done. And if, and if the other deals that we've seen, Longshoremen, UPS, Pilots, the TSA, we'll tell you about that in a second. They're getting 30 and 40% raises, which we love, by the way. We want people to make as much money as possible. But how in the world are costs going to come down when labor costs are going to go higher, Mark. Hard stop. Well, when you look at the UAW contract coming up this year, yeah, the optics are the automakers have made a lot of money in the last four years. There's new leadership in the UAW, and they feel like they have a mandate. And so they're going to want more you know, raises. They're going to want you know, cost of living adjustments, pension improvements. To your point, they really want to make sure that these battery plants that currently now pay at a lower rate than being in you know, one of the traditional plants. They're gonna want that addressed. And the bottom line is you are gonna see costs go up. You know, that's just a fact of life that the automakers are probably planning for. But keep in mind, Brian, labor is less than 10% of the cost of a vehicle. But to your point, I think what you're gonna see out of the automakers, and you saw this out of GM this week, where they added another billion dollars of cost reduction over the next year, that's anticipating yeah. higher labor costs, 
but they have to keep I working just, down the base cost of the business I, to afford these EVs. I, I hear you. I drive five, 600 miles a week on average, Mark. I'm telling you, I see the new Bronco everywhere. It's a, by the way, if it's a four-door, the two-door is a little funky if it's small. But the big Bronco, I see it everywhere. I don't, I don't see a lot of Mach-E's. And I just hope Ford, which is a great company, f one fifty is fantastic. You know, I have a lot of friends there. I hope they're... I hope they're listening. I just wonder if they're listening to the customer or trying to force something on the customer that the customers are saying, we don't want. Well, for right now, the whole industry is faced with that exact issue, which is, listen, yeah. it's about cost and the industry is going to solve that over the next couple of years. It's around range. That's going to you know, get solved. But the real issue, Brian, to your point, is convenience for the customer. There has to be a compelling reason to buy these EVs. And if it's if yeah. I don't have a two car garage that I can you know charge my vehicle at night, it's going to inconvenience me to spend forty five minutes at a charger to to fill up, if you will. You know you could argue that this isn't going to be solved until you get to you know solid state EVs, which have a much shorter charging time and yeah. more akin to filling up at the gas. I think I think that the solid state battery will be the game changer. I wonder if it's like nineteen ten right now for EVs. Mark Fields. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right. So, folks, just when you thought and were told that inflation was easing, you might want to brace for your next electric bill. And we're throwing this next RBI out to our good friends in Pawtucket and Woonsocket. Stick around. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Time now for your daily RBI. And this one, as we said, goes out to all of our friends in the small but mighty state of Rhode Island. And it's a little bit of bad news. I'm sorry. You're going to be paying more for electricity again and soon. Rhode Island Energy is asking for a 24% rate increase beginning in October. And that, my friends, would be on top of the 47% jump last year. And that's also way up from just three years ago. In fact, if this hike is approved... Electricity rates in much of Rhode Island will have jumped 70, 70% from the winter of 2020. This, by the way, even as the price of natural gas has come down. So what about new energy sources to help us supply to maybe bring down prices? We hear a lot about that. Well, good luck. You can't build a new pipeline. You know that. And now wind is at risk. A few days ago, the Rhode Island utility also canceled a proposed offshore wind farm project. The reason? It was too expensive. And while we don't know all the details, the utility reported that higher costs, uncertainty around federal tax credits, and even higher interest rates were largely to blame. This is not an isolated situation. There are other big offshore wind farm projects that are at risk of never being built because of skyrocketing costs. A controversial New Jersey project did just get approved, but only because the state at the last minute, decided to give a bunch of tax credits to Europe's, one of Europe's richest companies instead of back to New Jersey taxpayers in the form of higher rate rebates. And while this may now just be happening in parts of New England or New Jersey, it could be a cautionary tale for all of you out there, hoping energy prices will ever come down. Because wouldn't it be tragic if the Fed 
and inflation helps scuttle our new energy movement. Just happened in Rhode Island. Random, but interesting. All right, let's bring in Al Rabel on all of this. He is the CEO of Kane Anderson Capital Advisors. They invest in energy. They invest in energy infrastructure. They invest in commercial real estate, among other things. Uh, Al, perfect guest for this. Thank you for, for schlepping out to the wilds of New Jersey. Thanks for having um, me, Brian. And again, we're not going after wind farms. We're saying what factually occurred just now. How important are interest rates and borrowing costs to the energy transition? Oh, yeah, hugely important. I mean, and I think Rhode Island and, and other places, this is just a, this is a case of reality crashing into theory. Um, you, you can't live on subsidies forever. And as I've said before, actually with you, it's not A, B or C, it's all of the above, mm-hmm. meaning fossil fuels, nuclear and renewables have to be part of the answer. So the reality, whether we like it or not, the reality is th- that as globally, we're going to need 50% more energy than we have today in 2050. That's got to come from somewhere. What, where? I mean, you can't, you can't build a nuclear plant. We're building one, I think, in Georgia. You can't build a nuclear plant. Uh, wind farms are getting hurt. Some people are, some, even environmentalists are, are complaining about them. Now you've got this borrowing cost issue in Rhode Island, as well as some other places. There's a fight over dominions off the coast of Virginia. We'll see what happens there. No one's building new natural gas plants. Coal is DOA, even though we're using more coal now than pretty much ever globally. Well, I mean, where, are we getting, big, where are we going to get our power? And one of the big issues on, on natural gas is even just the infrastructure to get it to the northeast where, it's, where it needs to be used. So th- there, there are a lot of issues. Where are we going to get the power? I, I mean, I think you have to sometimes hit a crisis before people turn around. And, you know, your previous segment with Ford is Ford offering people what they want. I think the reality of people paying 70% more for their utility bills in the U.S., we're in Rhode Island and, and other states to come, is that that is, that is not going to be met happily. And at some point in time, you're going to have a pushback. And the, the reality is that while yeah, when the, we- when the, when, the, when the heat doesn't come on in winter, when the PJM, which is the grid operator in the Mid-Atlantic, it's not my words, a couple months ago on a sleepy Friday, just dropped the report that basically said, in about seven years, we probably won't have enough electricity or maybe won't have enough electricity to meet all of our power needs. Well, renewables are part of the answer, but they're part of the answer. And so that's it. So you have to have A, B and C. You have to you have to be able to deliver power to people at a cost that they can afford. We are not going to go backwards as a country and globally, we're not going to go backwards. So the, the, the reality is that, we, that we, you know, we have to explore all of, all of the options in front of us. And I think the reality is also that it's not a 10 to 15 year energy transition. It's 100. It's, a, it's two. Let's say it's 30 to 100. Yeah, that, that's the that's the reality. Fossil fuels aren't going anywhere anytime. No, soon. no. And, but uh, but you got a plan. But my I guess the point is, I think, by the way, I think wind farms are pretty cool look at the, te- the technology certainly is amazing but you're an investor investors demand return higher interest rates make investing harder or at least change the calculus do they not they absolutely do and you know we're in the midst of that right now so um, it has to make sense and and otherwise I say capital will go where it's welcomed it also has to achieve you know a, an appropriate return I mean Warren Buffett is looking at the energy complex and investing in many different ways. And the reality is fossil fuels are not the enemy. He's, he is welcoming ESG because it's presented opportunities to him. And at Kane, we have a fund that actually invests um, in, in, in acquiring existing wells and 
plus or minus eight years ago, you were paying six times cash flow. Today, you're paying three times cash flow. Why? Because there's so many investors who are now on the sidelines because fossil fuels have become the enemy. Well, fossil fuels aren't the enemy. And obviously, carbon is the enemy. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Carbon in the carbon in the atmosphere. Carbon in the atmosphere. And, is and, the enemy, and there, but. there's a lot of money, by the way, billions being spent to try to help that issue, not just building out solar and one, you know, things that don't emit directly from the source, but capturing the carbon. Could carbon capture? Is that is that a real thing or is that, again, just so expensive? Nobody's ever going to invest in it. Well, science and technology definitely have to be part of the answer. And they scale down in price always. Yeah. Or is law. You know, so that that, you know, that is part of the answer, but it's not the entire answer. So um, but from an investment perspective, I think you have to look at all of the above and fossil fuels certainly are part of the uh, part of the future. Yeah. Well, as listen, well as I, I know I'm not a genius, but I do know this. If the population's growing and they're shutting down nuclear, but not building new farms, you just don't know where it's going to come from. But hopefully you are a part of the solution, not the problem. Al Rabel of Kane Anderson. Al, good to have you on. Thank you very Thanks much for, for coming out. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. All right. Hey, folks, take a look at this. OK. That is the hottest stock in the world. It's up 350% in a week. It's Tupperware. Herb Greenberg is here with WT whatever. Next. All right, move over GameStop. Forget about Robinhood. There is a new meme stock on the block, and you probably heard of the product. <laughs> Tupperware. Shares of Tupperware up more than 50% today. Tupperware's value has more than quadrupled in a week, and its trading volume reached more than eight times the stock's today moving average, but obviously still far from its all-time highs. And one of Last Call's favorite market watchers says that investors should not touch this thing with a 10-foot Poll, that is Mr. Herb Greenberg of Empire Research and a CNBC contributor who's shaking his head. When did Tupperware become GameStop? It became GameStop in 2020 and in now back in 2023. Same darn thing happened last back then. The difference was it was the stay at home crowd. People came in. They discovered they're going to stay at home. They needed resealables for their leftovers. Melvin Capital got involved. What a story. And then, of course, reality hit and the stock started to really tumble. And um, I'll tell you right now what's happened is, I mean, the only thing I can think of is either one of two things. Either somebody is trading on illegal insider information or some penny stockbroker or the Wall Street bets crowd think they discovered Tupperware. Oh, my gosh. Tupperware, an iconic brand trading at a buck or less than a buck or just over a buck. Got to do something with I it. I don't know. I, you know I, just because I disagree. I disagree with you a little bit, my friend. I'll tell you why. I think it's this whole May, May file for bank. Tupperware was 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 talked about for filing for bankruptcy. They have not. You look at what happened to Hertz, right? So companies that this have either gone Hertz. bankrupt or this or, is not Hertz. Well, this is not Hertz. Brian. Why not? This is a company. I'm look, saying this it's is like a, a bankruptcy got- trade or like an expected bankruptcy trade. Great, good luck. Highly speculative. The company is the company not only violated its loan covenants, not only has said, you know, it has a classic going concern uh, uh, warnings out there. This is a company that says it materially misstated its financials in 2020, 2021, the first three quarters of 2022. It hasn't filed anything since. There's something deeper going on here. The company's trying to turn itself around. They did a retail deal with Target. But, you know, when you start going from being a 
a, a, a multi-level marketer or a direct seller to retail, right there you have an issue with your business model. All I know is this is one of those things, great iconic brand. And I wrote about this on my Substack, Herb on the Street, a whole case study I put up there on this. Great iconic brand does not necessarily mean it's going to be a great investment. Hertz, there was Hertz. I'm, but, I'm I, I agree. I think I think thing. I think we agree. What I'm saying, you're using the word investor. I'm maybe thinking about the term trader, right? Because let's be clear, they are different things. Very different types of. But they suck. Very in, different but people. But they suck in. They suck in Ma and Pa because everybody knows the name. It's the perfect. It's the perfect. I would say, it's the perfect trap for the typical investor. This one will go down as a great one. And by the way, if I were to predict what's going to happen. Company, whatever, who knows what happens to the parent company? Who knows? But the brand Tupperware, it's not going to disappear. Yeah. The products, they'll be somewhere. Something will happen to the brand. But there's the brand and there's the company. Brian, good luck to anyone who's trading this thing. Well, people have made a lot of money. We shall see. But the warning, Herb Greenberg, be careful. Herb Greenberg, Tupperware, Tupper here. Herb, thank you. Time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, all the news that matters in the world of business and an update on Grimace. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. Call it airport inflation. TSA workers getting their biggest pay raise since the agency's founding in 2001. Salaries will jump by 30% on average depending on position and length of service. You've probably heard about the new McDonald's Grimace shake in honor of the purple mascot's birthday. Well, if you haven't, here's a look. Since he was born, Grimace has always had a birthday. He's always had it at McDonald's. Well, today the company's earnings proved the shake may have been a success for McDonald's. Same store sales up 10%. Incredibly rare, never worn Apple sneakers going for a cool 50,000 bucks at a Sotheby's auction. The shoes were made for Apple employees as a one-time giveaway back in the 90s. In space news, Lockheed Martin won a contract to develop and build a nuclear thermal rocket engine for NASA and the Pentagon. The engine would speed up space travel and help humans one day land on Mars. Oh, over already. Cool stuff. All right, coming up, where the ultra-wealthy are putting their money right now, and it may not be where you think. Michael Sonnenfeld of Tiger 21 with an exclusive look next. All right, welcome back. Do you ever wonder how the world's richest spend and invest and make, by the way, their money? Well, lucky for you, we have some insight to share from Tiger 21. Tiger 21 is an exclusive global network of wealth creators and families. And by the way, how exclusive is it? Well, all members must have at least 20 million or an equivalent in verifiable investable assets. The average among families that are members of Tiger 21 is 110 million. Now, the latest quarterly asset allocation report from Tiger shows members are mostly invested in private equity, real estate, and then just public equities. Cash, 11%. Bonds, they're boring, 7% as well. A majority are now investing in what we talk about all the time, artificial intelligence, both through venture-related investments as well as just straight-up investments in big tech. My members expect to see Microsoft, Google, and Apple have the most success with their AI efforts. Joining us now for more on how the... Uh, 
I would say the other half, but the other 0.001% live is the founder of Tiger 21, Michael Sonnefeld. Michael, good to see you again. Thanks for having me. One thing I love about your organization, I've been to many of your meetings and I'm honored to be there, is people think, oh, these are rich families. Most of your members that I've met started off with one franchise or one store, and now they own 100 because they busted their tails, they took some risks, and they made it. They sacrificed a lot. So they've got a great pulse on the economy, so you do too. How do they see things right now? How do you see things? Well, the biggest trend that's going on is AI. That's what's going on in our meetings all across the globe. We have over 100 meetings every month, and 56% of our members are interested in AI. And as you mentioned, they're playing it two completely different ways. One is through the public markets. Uh, I'd add NVIDIA to the list because they make the AI chips. Mm -hmm. And the Teslas and Rivians are using AI in all of the facets of their business. Uh, But then there's the private equity and the venture startup. And if you're in any venture uh, fund today or you're in any venture uh, investment, you're going to be asking, is there an AI play? Are they using AI to lever what we're doing to make it bigger, faster? Uh, because with AI, that's the potential. Is there any fear? Because I, I don't remember anything talked about this much since maybe literally the, the internet was created. A little frothy? Yeah. So one of the differences is that because you have the Googles and the Microsoft available, Those are great AI plays, but they're still big companies without it. So the downside is much more limited than Mm. the Internet phase. That's That's a very good point. You know, private equity, not accessible to most people. We know that they are for for Tiger investors. Realist, your your members, they love love their real estate. Yeah. They they love their real estate. Yeah, but I just want to add, on AI, three people can now start a company. So when you say it's not available, private equity to wealthy people, anybody can start a company because the tools that AI are creating allow you to take three people and chat GPT or write your code and do your press releases. It's amazing the lever that AI is giving to startups. I hear that. I meant that most people can't invest in private equity. It's not like most of our viewers. "Ah, I have 10 grand. I'd like to get into the Sequoia Fund. But it's an excellent point on how, I mean, your members, the ones I've met, all great people, some of them own franchises, yeah. you know, fast food or, sure. or, or Jiffy Lubes or self-storage containers. Is there any group of people that's not talking about AI? Well, uh, you'd think meat and potatoes is not AI, but the most meat and potato businesses are focusing on AI, had a scale. I don't know if you saw the announcement this week, the largest solar power plant in Kentucky is a Tiger member uh, that has a company that uh, partnered with Rivian. Why did it go to a coal mine to put a solar power plant? Because their AI, uh, the company's name is Brightnight. The AI uh, allows them to kick into the utility system better than without. They can buy really? better. And uh, it was just announced yesterday. It's an extraordinary. Well, I, 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 I did not know about it. You're breaking the news to me now. But I love the fact that it's a coal to solar transition. Exactly. Powering Rivian. And then, of course, the, the AI startup on the solar side. That is fantastic. Uh, going back overall, your members, you were saying retention is high. You're, you're, you're gaining members. Um, it feels like there's there was last year at your meeting, there was some people worried about a recession. Yeah. Feels like there's less of that now? A little less. Still people concerned because when you're preserving wealth, you're always concerned about the next recession. It's your job to worry. Or pay somebody to worry for you. Yeah, but when you're in our meetings around the world every month, you're learning about what the hot deals are. Uh, AI, just one thing, it allows companies to scale. And you were talking earlier before, what's the biggest problem we need to scale? Energy and climate. 
and the power of AI to help new climate fighting companies scale is going to be what's going to tip the balance. You don't think that there's any just a little bit of overhype on this or is this the real deal? Because because, Michael, it's adding it's adding probably hundreds of billions, if not trillions in market value to a lot of companies. Well, what the, total. what the real deal is the heat and the heat waves, and we have to do something about it, and they're going to get worse. So we have to fight it with new clean energy companies. And the only way they're going to scale is with technology, and AI is right at the core for that. Um, I think, you know, we have a climate fund, full disclosure. We invest in companies that are AI and climate solutions together because the AI helps scale. When I say we, I don't mean Tiger 21, I mean as a personal investor, mm -hmm. but AI helps these small climate companies scale faster to have a bigger impact. One thing about Tiger is your, your chapters have a limited number of members, then you'll start a new chapter in maybe the same city. So I can kind of tell where rich people are growing. Yeah. Where are you seeing more growth for your membership? Well, still uh, the Tampas of the world, Houston. Florida is huge. California uh, has had people moving to the uh, Texases, and uh, obviously that's been big. But we've been globally expanding. Uh, you're going to see us. We've just opened in Tel Aviv. Uh, before too long, you'll see Singapore across Europe. It's, uh, it's kind of amazing. It's all over the place. Well, and you started it, and, and now it's huge. And some of the best people I've met, and including yourself, Michael Sonnefeld, really appreciate it. Thank you. Tiger 21, thank you. All right, coming up. If you thought college tuition was expensive, just wait till you hear what parents are paying for now. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Many of you have students, kids, getting ready to head back to college. And many of them may be interested in the Greek life, fraternities and sororities. And sorority rush is swiftly approaching. And since... First impressions can mean a lot, maybe everything in sorority rush. Some young women are looking for pros to help them through the process. Listen to this. There are parents shelling out a couple thousand dollars for sorority consultants to help their daughters make a good impression during what is going to be a very competitive rush. Joining us now to talk about it is Stacia Dameron, the founder and CEO of Hiking in Heels, a sorority rush coaching service. They work with girls at over 70 schools around America. All right, Stacia, I'm old. I was in a fraternity. It was a very different, I'm not going to tell you, it was a totally different process. <laughs> not in a good way. How, how has Sorority Rush involved and why do we need you to, why do girls, women need you to help them get in? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me in Hiking in Heels on tonight. The sorority recruitment process has evolved from what it once was. Um, COVID has actually introduced a lot of new registration materials that were not there before. These include 90 second to three minute video um, assignments. They include short answers, college admission style essays. Sorority recruitment is has evolved into much more than just showing up in a cute outfit and you know, having great conversations. Wow. These girls are preparing a year to six months in advance. And these are all in addition to previous materials that were due, such as as many as 30, three zero letters of recommendation, letters of recommendation that they have to obtain beforehand previously, in addition to social resumes. Things have, uh, the stations, I'm sorry to interrupt, things have really changed since my day, I can tell you that much. Uh, you know, when we hear the Greek system, 
is is dying off. But it seems to me that that maybe that be that may be one of those things that people say, but it's not actually true. Yet for the sorority side, things are only growing. On many campuses, there are as many as you know upwards of two thousand girls participating in the recruitment process at these larger schools. Yeah, Stacia, so can you give us very quickly a little free free sample of just a quick piece of advice that you would offer? Quick piece of advice I would offer. The most important thing I could possibly tell you if you're getting ready is know your deadlines. It is a, the strategy of recruitment Mm -hmm. is clever and creative enough to understand how, when, and where to market yourself in order to stand out. And you have to, in order to get the edge you have to get the recruitment team's attention long before formal recruitment ever starts. If you've waited when the registration materials come out, you're already too late. And I'm assuming you have a lot of demand for your service, Stacia. That is correct. It has been a very busy year for us over here. Stacia Dameron, hiking in heels. Uh, It's a whole new world. Stacia, we appreciate you joining us here on Last Call. Thank you very much. All right, speaking of college students, today is National Intern Day, and we want to give a a pretty big shout-out to our amazing summer intern, Jennifer Small from Boston University. Jennifer, where are you? Where's our our favorite BU? We're just showing some random... We need to get Jennifer out here, whatever. Uh, She is fantastic. We've loved having her with us. She's got a couple more weeks. She is a, a massive Massachusetts residence in general and a BU Terrier. She's done a lot, by the way, including giving a tour right now to some awesome high schoolers as well. Just people coming and going all the time at CBC. So Jennifer Small, thank you for all you do as well. All right, folks, that's it for last call on this. What is it, Thursday? It's almost TGIF. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.